it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, June 20th, 2022, a brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you for listening Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, the show is available around the clock for free as a podcast if you can't listen live. GuyBensonShow.com for all the details and everything related to the show, really. GuyBensonShow.com. On the podcast side, you can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. Always excited about joining her panel. That's this evening, FBN. And, of course, host of this fine program each and every day. We are loaded up with guests. Joining us in just a few moments is our first guest on the economy. Later on this hour, Lieutenant General retired Keith Kellogg. On the latest out of Ukraine, we might get to a few other subjects as well with the general. In our middle hour... Dr. Marty McCary will join us on the controversy involving the approval and recommendation some places, not others, of the COVID vaccine for young children under the age of five. Is that a good idea? Should it be required? What should parents know? We will talk to Dr. McCary about the data, what it shows and what it doesn't. We'll get into all of that with him. In our final hour, the happy hour, very excited to chat with Brad Thor, who's a novelist. He writes thrillers. He's a best-selling author. Numerous of his numerous books have gone number one. Often they end up in the top five of the New York Times bestseller list. He's got a new book coming out on July 5th, so very soon, called Rising Tiger. It's set in India. It's about the Chinese threat from the CCP, and I just finished it over the weekend. And it was a lot of fun and thought-provoking, as usual. Brad will be here to talk about that book and some of the real issues and concerns that underpin the fiction, because there's a lot of reality in the thrillers that he writes. And then finally, at the very end of the show, in our happy hour home stretch, a special guest, my dad. Because yesterday was Father's Day. He also just completed a very cool journey throughout the United States. He just set out... Him in his car, he's always wanted to do this. He'd been threatening to do it for years. He finally did it, and he crisscrossed the country for weeks, really the better part of two months. Just him and his thoughts and his phone, chatting with people. He hit, I think, more than half of the states in the whole country over the course of this journey, over the course of this trip, and we will ask him about that because I think it's pretty cool. So that's coming up a little bit later on. But we begin today on the economy and the number one issue in the country. And with us to discuss some of these issues is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a longtime budget wonk and economic policy expert on Capitol Hill as well. Brian, good to have you here as usual. Glad to be back. Let's start with the conversation surrounding recession. 
because uh, basically everyone is finally acknowledging that with inflation doing what it's doing and with the Fed taking increasingly dramatic steps to curb inflation, the likelihood or the possibility of this so-called soft landing, avoiding recession, is getting, let's say, trickier, maybe less likely. Even some people within the administration, like Janet Yellen, are admitting that even though, in her mind, a recession is not inevitable, the economy is going to slow, right? That's an acknowledgement that she's making. You've got other people like Brian Dees out there on behalf of Biden trying to talk up the economy. Things are a lot stronger than people realize. Then you have Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary under Obama, who was right about inflation a year ago. He is again saying recession is more likely than not. Here he was over the weekend, cut five. Nothing is certain, and all economic forecasts have uncertainty. My best guess is that a recession is ahead. I base that on the fact that we haven't had a situation like the present with inflation above four and unemployment below four without a recession following within a year or two. All right, so that was on Meet the Press, Larry Summers. Brian, where do you fall in this debate? Yeah, I, mean, I was going to echo what, what Mr. Summers said, which is at every point in the last 75 years that we have had the current economic conditions, which is inflation above four, unemployment below four, we have gotten a recession while trying to get out of it 100% of the time in the past 75 years. Uh, and, and the danger is, remember, we already had the economy contract last quarter. And so if the economy contracts again in the current quarter, that's two consecutive quarters of a shrinking economy, which is the normal definition of a recession. So we're halfway there. We're already through the first quarter. And if you look at where the Federal Reserve has to go, you know, they've pushed up interest rates to about 2%, the 10-year bonds at about 3%. But at today's inflation, a neutral interest rate would be about 7 to 9%, which means that you, pro- you may have to see the Federal Reserve push up interest rates to 7 to 9% just to be neutral and start to push down inflation. If that's true, I cannot imagine us pushing up interest rates that high without it triggering a recession, given the fact that we already are in the one quarter of negative economic growth already. And as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Summers says we haven't been able to pull off this sort of fix without a recession in 75 years. Yeah. And look, there are some experts circling the calendar for 2023 as the likeliest time for a recession related to all of this. Some people even saying 24. It could be much sooner than that, to the point that you just made here a moment ago. There are a lot of people, Brian, who are my age, younger, who have never experienced inflation, let alone runaway inflation. They don't remember the Carter years at all. When you, and now they're experiencing it, it's a very unpleasant experience. You know, every time you go to buy anything, it costs more. The purchasing power of your dollar is diminished. Your wages are less valuable. Any increase that you get, might get overtaken in all likelihood or swamped by inflation. Okay, so that's sort of step one of this type of pain, fueled by a number of different phenomena and causes, including reckless overspending by the federal government. To get out of it, you're talking about these course corrections from the Fed and higher interest rates. What does that look like? Why does that affect people? How does that affect people if interest rates continue to go up? What is what is that... Ex- 
real life experience like for average folks? Yeah, I mean, if, if for those who remember the 70s and early 80s, um, what happens is the Federal Reserve can raise interest rates through the roof. We had the prime rate hit about 18% in the late 70s. Um, the purpose, of course, is to basically stop economic activity. You stop business investment, you stop home loans, you stop car loans, you stop enough economic activity that you defeat inflation by basically grinding the economy to a halt. But the price of grinding the economy to a halt is that you might bring down inflation, but the high interest rates make it very hard on families who can't borrow. If you have an adjustable rate mortgage, you're in deep trouble. If you want to move, you're in deep trouble. And the fact that businesses can't really invest and people don't really have much money to spend in that environment causes the whole economy to contract. And that's when you get unemployment rate hitting about 10%, which is the last time we had inflation this high, we had the push up on the unemployment rate to 10%, which is about what it was at the peak of the Great Recession in 2009. So <laughs> I hope it doesn't get to that point, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that it won't get to the, that point, but that was the 70s and 80s example, is you ended up seeing interest rates go up to about 18%, and it ground the economy into about 10% unemployment. By design, to lick inflation, and then you get the yeah. recession side of it, and there's a lot of new pain, a different kind of pain that arrives before things sort of reach another equilibrium. And as you answered that question, Brian, it also struck me we just had the economy ground to a halt deliberately by the government for a very different reason during the especially early days of a pandemic that was affecting the whole world. But, man, it's just like a lot of shocks to the economy in the span of just a few years. It's hugely disruptive to people. And we're still, I mean, we're still dealing with the after effects of the Great Recession, which, which caused a lot, of, a lot of changes for a lot of individuals. It caused a lot of changes in how people view government. People became more progressive, wanting more government cradle-to-grave activity. A lot of people ended up going to college longer and hiding from the workforce and building up more student loans. People are still trying, you know, still recovering from the economic aspects of that. And then you bring in the pandemic and this, and it's really looking like a long, tough period. Period. But this is why we need to get our fundamentals in order. I mean, this, this inflation and recession that, that may be coming, we're not guaranteed. We, we made it worse with the American Rescue Plan. And I think, you know, politicians look for these short-term fixes and the huge government spending and, and the aggressive Federal Reserve rather than focusing on the boring fundamentals of, of productivity and growth. This is what you end up with. Brian Riedel, I want to turn to gas prices in particular. I saw that you had issued something of a fact check, as did uh, many other people, of this hyper-viral tweet by a Democratic member of Congress, Lori Trahan of Massachusetts, who's on the Energy Committee. She's on the National Resources Committee. This is supposed to be her portfolio, her area of expertise. She tweeted over the weekend, and it has like 157,000 likes. It's been amplified all over the place by blue check marks. Price for a barrel of oil today, $117. Price for a barrel of oil in 2014, $120. So why are gas prices $2 higher per gallon today than they were in 2014? Because big oil corporations are hiking prices to rake in record-setting profits. So you have a lot of people who are like, yes, greedy big oil, that's who's at fault. There's no explanation for this other than that. And it is being shared far and wide. 
problem, among others, is that it's not true. I haven't seen any warning misinformation label from Twitter, which they say that they use to flag viral misinformation. Apparently, some viral misinformation is okay, whereas others, uh, you know, other examples are not, even if it turns out not to be misinformation. Uh, That goes down a whole different conversation about big tech, Twitter, censorship, who decides. But just take on her argument here, which is increasingly a popular one, at least among flailing Democrats, that it's certainly not the Democrats' fault. It's certainly not Biden's fault at all. It's Putin. It's the oil companies. And it's also those out-of-power Republicans who aren't voting for these you know, silly stunt bills that will crack down on price gouging or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it took two minutes to fact-check what she said. She said oil prices have are, are $120 per barrel, uh, just like in 2014. Actually, in 2014, they averaged $93 per barrel, peaking at 107 uh, And so right there, oil per barrel is up about $25 during that period. And gas prices aren't up $2. They're up about a dollar and a half nominal and about 75%, or about 75 cents adjusted for inflation. So it, it took... It took 30 seconds uh, to, to Google and see that her numbers were comically off. But that's how you get 157,000 likes on Twitter, by posting complete nonsense for an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. The reality is gas prices are set by supply and demand. We have some contrained oil um, by by what's going on, the war in in Russia. But even before then, it's taking a while for oil companies to ramp back up after the shutdown over the last two years. At the same time, demand is rising. First off, it it always rises this time of the year when people are driving more. Also, when people still have more disposable income uh, that they had from the recession uh, uh, and, and the stimulus payments. And on top of it, we're not expanding oil and gas capacity anywhere because we're, we're stopping permits. You put all that together, constrained supply, increased demand, that's driving gas prices up, not nefarious oil executives who suddenly decided to become greedy yes, a suddenly. couple ago. Right. They, they, just, just, they, they turned off the greed. Between 2014 and 2022, now the grid is back, and that's why this is all happening. I would be more upset about this and this misinformation, although, again, the double standards on what gets called out and what gets flagged, it does drive me crazy. It drives a lot of people crazy. Except the reason I'm a little bit more copacetic and chill about it, Brian, is that it's not working. You look at the polling, the American people have a dismal view of this president, of his presidency, of his handling of the economy and inflation, People are asked, do you blame his policies more or any of these other excuses? And a majority blame him and his policies. So, I mean, it really does feel like them flailing. I don't know what else they've got, I guess. And they don't want to look at their own policies. And this is my last question. We have about a minute and a half left. Interesting tweet from you earlier. You said, why aren't the progressives happy about high gas prices? Why are they talking about a gas tax holiday isn't the whole goal of their worldview to shift us perhaps painfully away from gas and fossil fuels onto this exciting new future that they talk about shouldn't they be happy about the pain yeah i mean progressives for decades have looked longingly at europe 
and the fact that gas prices are double, triple what we have in Europe because of their high gas taxes, and said that's the answer for the environment. More gas taxes, more carbon taxes, get people to consume less energy, get people to invest in mass transit, get people to walk and bike more. This has been a progressive obsession for 20 to 30 years, and now they're getting exactly what they want. $5 gas and even higher was supposedly the goal. And instead of celebrating it and wanting it to go higher, they're panicking and talking about a gimmicky gas tax holiday, which makes me wonder if the entire movement for the last 20 or 30 years was a giant bluff, that realistically there was no way progressives can handle the politics of higher gas prices, and this was all just kind of moral preening. Well, I think they would like to have the outcome that they're talking about, but they're very concerned about the political ramifications, and there's an election coming up, and they are sweating bullets for understandable reasons. Brian Riedel at the Manhattan Institute, he's a senior fellow there, walking through fact versus fiction, which I think we need a lot of that sort of reality check these days. Brian, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Monday. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Yesterday was Juneteenth. Today is the federal holiday. So if you've got the day off, congratulations. That sounds lovely, commemorating an important day in U.S. history. We are here hard at work. We're not at the beach, although that sounds very nice. President Biden's at the beach today, and he did take a few questions. A reporter asked him about the economy and the possibility of recession, which was one of the things we just talked about with Brian Riedel in the last segment. And the president was a little cranky about that question and cut 33. I promise. Not the majority of them aren't saying that. Come on, don't make things up, okay? Now you sound like a Republican politician. I'm joking. That was a joke. joke. But all kidding aside, no, I don't think it is. Oh, well, if he doesn't think so, then I feel better. The surf in the background sounds lovely, though. You notice with Joe Biden, when he says not a joke, it often means whatever he's saying isn't true. When he says that's a joke, it's a joke, it kind of means that it's not. And he realizes he was a little ornery. Now you're sounding like a Republican politician talking about a recession coming. Well, is Larry Summers a Republican politician, former Obama Treasury Secretary, who's saying it's more likely than not? Is history itself a Republican politician based on what has happened over the last 75 years that Brian Riedel recounted in the last segment? Well, we won't ask a follow-up of President Biden. He might lash out again. Got to take a break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson. 
GuyBensonShow.com, our website here at the program. Podcast is always free when the show is over each day. Joining us is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg. He's retired. Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former Chief of Staff, the National Security Council under President Trump, also author of the book War by Other Means. General, great to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Guy, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. What is your assessment right now of Russia's war in Ukraine? I know some folks are saying it's sort of reached a stalemate in the east. The Russians are making some gains, but not huge gains. Some people wondering, where is all this aid in terms of military assistance to the Ukrainians? Is it is there a lag here? Will there be an opportunity for the Ukrainians to win back some of the areas that have fallen now into Russian hands? What do you make of all of that? Yeah, um, I think as we're starting to see a little bit of uh, the Russian winning this fight, uh, especially in the Donbass region, not near Kiev yet. And I think part of that is our fault. What I mean by our fault is the United States of America, not because we have given them a massive amount of, of aid in the sense of you know over $54 billion, but it's weapon systems that we're not providing them that they're asking for. You know, and let me just explain simply where I'm coming from is in the 1970s, 80s, we came up with a program in the United States military called Assault Breaker because we thought we were going to have to fight the Soviet Union uh, and the plains of Europe and the the Warsaw Pact allies. And one of the systems we came up with was called Multiple Launch Rocket System, MLRS for for short. And it it outranged the the Russian systems. It had greater lethality uh, out there. It had better precision because the missiles could be actually tipped with a guiding device on them. And they were really good system. So we decided to create this system, and we never fought the Russians, but we actually fought in in the Iraq war, and we brought 89 of those systems to us, primarily what's called the tracked version. It looks like an armored vehicle. had 12 missiles on it that you fired a salvo, so we could fire over 1,000 missiles at one time. This is the system that the Russians are afraid of because they know that this is the one system that can break their back if you put enough uh, artillery on them, um, MLRS on them, and and we designed it for that. So what has the Americans – what have we done in the United States of America? We've given them seven of the what's called the HIMARS version, which is a wheeled version, which only fires six missiles at one time. And you're going to wait a second. You want to fire – give them seven systems, so you're going to fire 42 missiles. When we went into the desert and had a system capability to fire over 1,000, and sitting in Germany today, there's a brigade of MLRS. I mean, they're not – it's not that they're – you can't find them, and they're – you know, they're – they're hard to get to. They're not. And it's one of those things, I think, that Biden has made the calculation that he doesn't want to raise any type of uh, escalatory issues with Putin because this is the one thing that Putin actually fears because this will break their back if used in volume, pure size alone. And it's frustrating to me because Mark Milley knows better. Lloyd Austin knows better. Anybody who has an ounce of sense knows better. You know, my 10-year-old granddaughter knows better that this is the type of system that can help the Ukrainians win the fight. But if they don't get something like this, the artillery that the Russians use, and it's in their DNA, and they're very good at it, over time will start to just uh, – to through attrition alone will defeat the Ukrainian military. Zelensky said the other day he's losing 100 soldiers killed in a day, 400 wounded in a day. You cannot keep that up. Those numbers eventually will turn on you, and you will lose the fight. And so the end state will be 
Russia could win this fight, push all the way down towards Kherson and into uh, Odessa and make Ukraine a rump state, a landlocked state, if if we don't do something. And right now he's not afraid of us. We're not going to do it. Uh, and, you know, we've, we're piecemealing the systems out. We gave him four. Now we gave him three more. The British gave him three systems. That's not how you fight. And, I, and this, is, this is on Biden. So you can give him all the money you want, but if you don't give him the munitions to be able to fight the fight, um, I, I think it's a huge mistake. I think this is one of those mistakes that when the history of this is written, uh, this will come back and, and bite the United States military that when we had the opportunity to provide them what they really needed, we didn't do it. Russia, of course, has lost a ton of personnel and weapons over the course of the fight. And that's why I think they've focused on the east now. It's somewhere where they're at least in better position to make gains. They're getting humiliated elsewhere and when you look at the, the shifting landscape of the fight, I saw the chief of NATO saying that this war could drag on for years. I mean, I know a lot of people were thinking about many months, maybe another year. It's been months already. But seeing that plural years, does that sound plausible to you? You know, honestly, Guy, it doesn't because this thing, uh, over time, the, the way the, the Russians fight and they keep using, you know, you know, size has a quality all of its own, and they're going to keep pu- pushing and and using this, and eventually Ukraine's going to say, you can't keep this up, and I don't think it's going to go for forever. And and part of that is because we it's not only the, the weapon systems, but nobody's gotten the ability to say to both sides, I want to be able to sit down and let's see if we can go to some type of diplomatic solution. Uh, and, and if Putin is not forced into this, and that's the reason I said things like MLRS, because the only way Putin is going to actually start talking is if he's bloodied to a point he realizes that the level of casualties he has taken uh, will, will impact him at home with, with the Russian mothers. And that actually happened in Afghanistan. Uh, and he's lost more today than he's lost in Afghanistan. But he's able, I think, hide it a little bit. And, and, and as long as people understand he's fighting a fight that they think they're winning in, I think he can keep that pressure up. At six years, you know, no, that's not. I mean, that's longer than World War II. That's not going to happen. I think you may see sub Rosa, and but it's all meaning some type of guerrilla fight going on, uh, unconventional warfare, but not six years. That's nobody will tolerate that. Europe can't tolerate it, and I don't think the Ukrainians could last that long. You tweeted a criticism of President Biden. He made an announcement just a few days ago about additional relief and aid to the Ukrainians, $1.2 billion in aid specifically to Ukraine. You're saying that announcement was irresponsible, not in the best interests of Americans. What do you mean by that? And could that money be used better in another way? Is this an issue of throwing too much money at a problem and not the specific needs like you were talking about earlier? Why do you use a word like irresponsible? Well, because when you look at $54 billion, and that's been the total package that they've provided right now, and then you compare it to what the Western alliance, not Germany, not France, I'm talking about you, you take the other 29 NATO countries plus, and they've given $8 billion. So we've asked the American people to pony up $54 billion. They're ponying up $8 billion. And you said, wait a second, this should not be on the back of Americans. This year, there should, in this alliance, there should be some type of equality. This is in Europe's backyard. This is important to, the, to Germany and to France and to Britain and everybody else over there. And yet they're putting this on our back. And I think that's a huge mistake. I, I don't think it's fair to the Americans. You know, if the, if the Allies were putting up another $54 billion, that's pretty good. Or if they were putting up 
25 billion, maybe that'd be okay. But when they only put up eight and we put up 54, you're asking the American people to to put up with a lot in in, with, in the environment that we currently face ourselves uh, economically. And it wasn't just spread out in military. I mean, it, the money went towards agriculture and commerce and justice, defense, energy, treasury, their State Department, USAID. We even there's even 25 million dollars to the U.S. Agency for Global Media to combat disinformation. You know, I'm, I'm just like, wait a second, where are we taking all this money from the American citizens sending it over there? And oh, by the way, the most critical thing is we've never put like we did in Afghanistan, where you had a special IG for accountability, an inspector general. We put nobody there that's going to account for this stuff. There's no special IG inspector general for accountability to turn around to the Americans and say, this was spent wisely, this was not spent wisely. And you look at the environment, which has is, is always been traditionally uh, you know, an environment that, that fraud, waste, and abuse can happen in, I, I think it's a huge mistake, and it's not fair to the American people. I saw a New York Times story today that said this, an analysis by that newspaper of more than a thousand photos from Ukraine found that Russia has used hundreds of weapons in that war that are widely banned by international treaties. Russia's attacks, the paper reports, made widespread use of weapons that kill, maim and destroy indiscriminately. And we've seen this, the slaughtering of civilians where they just shell and shell and shell until there's nothing left of a city. I mean, clearly war crimes, banned weapons, it's all disgusting. It's all outrageous. Is there any consequence for this? I mean, I know that we're sending a lot of money and munitions and we've cut them out of various organizations and sanctions and all of that have been imposed. But the Russians seem to be willing to do anything in order to, I don't know if win is the right word, but not lose and keep going. And, I mean, providing more and more evidence of this stuff, I guess, is important to have a historical record of what they're doing. I just wonder, is there really any deterrent for Putin to do these things that are illegal and wrong? He seems to not care at all. Well, I think you're right, Guy. And, and, and this, by the way, again, this is in their DNA. This is what they did in Chechnya, and this is what they did in Afghanistan. And how you make them stop doing it is you defeat their military or make it then be, make it become so cost prohibitive they decide to not do it. I mean, that's, they left Afghanistan, and so it stopped in Afghanistan. But they did the same thing, cluster munitions. They throw out mines that look like toys. Uh, they, they, did, they do things that we in the West, in the United States military, believe is abhorrent. And we would never do that. But they do it as, as a member of – it's just like it's a routine. And that's what's and – I, and I don't think anything is going to come of it, meaning nobody's going to hold them accountable for it because this is the way they act. So my way of holding them accountable to it is you make them, you make them bleed because that's the only thing that Putin understands is force. So you use overwhelming force to really basically destroy their army as best you can and their forces to make them back away from that. And that's the reason I'm saying provide them as much as you can. I'm not saying put U.S. troops in there, but but Ukraine didn't start this fight. Russia started this fight. That's right. So everybody should say, we're, you know, that's enough. We're not going to do it. We're not going to tolerate it, especially when they did what, like what they did with Mariupol, where they just destroyed a city.
city. I mean, just Completely. destroyed it. Yep. And you go, wait, that's something that that we just don't do. We've we went away from that with total war, World War Two, when we when everybody fought like that. But now you're a little more precise because you've got precision missions. And they were the only in the only reason you use munitions like that in a city is to terrorize people and to kill population centers, and that's what they're doing. I mean, we would never do that to a city. We just wouldn't do it. But they do it as routine, and you're going to see that happen all across Ukraine because this is how the Russians fight. And the only way, again, and I said it a minute ago, you turn it around, is you make them pay an inordinate price for doing that. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Last question, coming up later in the show today, actually, we have one of my friends, Brad Thor, who's a best-selling novelist. He writes thrillers. And his most recent book that's coming out July 5th called Rising Tiger talks a lot about and focuses on the threat of communist China and the government there, the military there, their intelligence operations, the technologies that they're working on. And I saw this Politico story just recently about the U.S. and the West's failure to correctly predict how the Russian and Ukrainian militaries would perform in the earliest stages of this current ongoing war. This is from Politico. I think there's a lot of underestimating of the Ukrainians, a lot of overestimating of the Russians. Now there are people wondering, are we in the United States, is our intelligence community, is our military perhaps experiencing big blind spots when it comes to China, if we're looking ahead to the future and a potential threat, hopefully that never comes to a head and never results in open war, but you obviously have to plan for everything and contingency plan. Is the, I guess, underestimation, overestimation, incorrect estimation vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine, is that something for us to be worried about as we think about China and what we believe they're capable of and how they would perform in a war? You know, Guy, absolutely. And I really – look, remember in Afghanistan, uh, our military advisors said that the you know, the, the Afghans were really going to last another six months, and they lasted about six days. And then they turned around to Ukraine, and they said uh, Ukraine would fall – the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, would fall within three days and actually offered Zelensky a ride out of town. And that didn't happen as well. And I said, boy, both of those are really bad intelligence failures. And they are intelligence failures. And if that's the way they're looking at it, what is actually happening? within China. We should never underestimate China because they, they clearly are on a path for, to me, I really believe this, not just regional but global dominance, not only economically but militarily as well. And if they get the chance to do it, they're going to do it. And we have to be keep our eyes wide open to that. That's the reason why all along I said we, when we focused in on the Middle East for 20 years, I think it's important, but we took our eyes off the ball with China and now we're paying a price because their growth is exponential and uh, what they're doing from their weapon systems uh, the growth of their military and the capacity of the military. So I think the answer is a direct answer is yes. I'm very concerned about our intelligence assessment of what it's going to look like in the next uh, few years with China. Retired Lieutenant General, uh, General rather Keith Kellogg, now a Fox News contributor, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. And, General, thank you very much for your insight and your time today. We always do appreciate it. Thanks, Kyrie. Thanks for having me. We will step aside. We will come right back. CNN has an interesting story about Democrats losing ground in yet another important voting demographic. We'll tell you which one it is as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we told you last week about the upset victory 
down in South Texas, Texas 34. Myra Flores flipping that district. Deep blue now to red. Now the district's going to change with redistricting, but still, that was the culmination of a massive shift down there. And already you're seeing some progressives trying to draw distinctions between different types of Hispanics. I saw one piece raging against white-skinned Mexicans and how they are playing a role in white supremacy or whatever. And this is just the type of insanity that explains why the identitarian left is losing. Where you try to write different people out of the people of color family, if they don't vote the way that you want them to, you start calling them racists or white supremacists or adjacent to white supremacy. It's crazy. It's like, well, you've got these bad racist Hispanics who are basically white versus these other ones. And I think that sounds familiar to a lot of Asian Americans who are often sort of just extricated from the POC category when it's convenient for the identity obsessives. For example, in college admissions, that's just a one thing that comes to mind. Which brings us to an interesting analysis from Harry Enton of CNN. We played some of his stuff recently, his on-air stuff, talking about the real trouble Joe Biden's in and the Democrats are looking at the polling broadly. He has a new piece out saying Democrats are losing ground with the fastest-growing political bloc, which is Asian Americans. Asian-American voters only make up 4% of the electorate, but they're the fastest-growing racial or ethnic portion of that electorate, electorate rather, which makes them important electorally. And he writes a lot about all the attention being paid to Biden's struggles with young people and shifts among Hispanic voters. But he says if you look at what happened, for example, in San Francisco with Asian-Americans turning out hard against the hard left in those Recall elections for the school board and then the DA, that could be what he calls a canary in the coal mine. And then he also looks at how dramatically Joe Biden's approval rating has shifted among Asian Americans specifically. He's still barely above water with Asian Americans, but he won that demographic in 2020 by 44 points. So it is one of the biggest shifts away from Joe Biden on approval of any group. So Democrats are sort of scrambling, and some of these racial issues that animate their politics might not be holding to the same old patterns, which is scaring them, and it should. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is available every day for free on demand after the program is over. We air live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, of course, and we recommend listening. Many options to listen live, by the way, through our great affiliates across the country, Fox Nation, Fox News app, the live stream. You've got options. And then, of course, the podcast as well, GuyBensonShow.com. Join me on Kennedy tonight. I'll be on the panel with the great lady. That's in the 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Hope to see you there on Fox Business Network. 
No update on the Dow for you because the markets are closed today. Federal holiday, we mentioned that in the last hour for Juneteenth. So we will bring you those developments tomorrow when the markets reopen. I want to discuss briefly something that happened over the weekend in Texas. Now, on the show last week, I mentioned in passing that when Republicans do things that I oppose and I think are destructive or wrong, I will tell the truth as I see it and call them out for it. Now, I think the Democrats are in charge of basically everything right now and are doing an extremely poor job and hurting the country. Just look around. And I await their drubbing in November with bated breath. And I think they are going to lose. The question is, how badly are they going to lose? I think the House is gone. Senate, not so sure because there's some flawed people out there on the Republican side. One For example, in Missouri, who's leading the pack, at least for now, we might get into that a little bit later on or later in the week. That's a diversion. That's a digression. The point is, just because I'm conservative and I tend to vote for Republicans doesn't mean that I'm going to just avert my eyes from unpleasant things on the right because I'm in the tribe and I don't really want to talk about it. And I'm just going to always criticize the left. Look, we criticize the left and the Democrats all the time here, for good reason. And also, look, when you're going to talk about your own side, quote-unquote, you pick your battles. I don't like these conservatives who seem to constantly attack within the group, right? It's just like the circular firing squad on the right. I don't like to participate in that. You have to really think about when it's worth it. And I would say that this is probably worth it. The Republican Party of Texas had their convention over the weekend. And these are some of the most hardcore activists in the party, about 5,000 of them. They show up and they gather and they argue and they vote on various motions and they put together a state party platform. And there were some things that happened at this convention some decisions that were made, some changes that were made, some actions that I thought were just really bad. And at the very least, unhelpful, if not worse. So this has unfortunately been the case now for a while, but the Log Cabin Republicans, which is the gay conservative group, they were excluded from even having a booth in the exhibit hall. Like, gay conservatives need not apply, you're not welcome here as an organization. And that's been the case Dating back multiple cycles, I just know this because the young Republicans invited me to speak at one of their offshoot events from a previous convention, which I believe was down in San Antonio. And they did so almost as a protest against the party convention, the wider party convention, barring the log cabins. They said, "Okay, if that's what you're going to do and shut out gay conservatives from participating, we're going to invite a gay conservative to speak to us. So I appreciated the invite. I went down there. I had a very nice time, had some good Tex-Mex. And here we are in 2022, and that's still the posture of the Texas GOP, at least the convention. And there are a lot of conservatives who aren't happy with that decision, including Donald Trump Jr., who said this in a statement, quote, the Texas GOP 
should focus its energy on fighting back against the radical Democrats and weak rhinos instead of canceling a group of gay conservatives who are standing in the breach with us. That was Donald Trump Jr. Sometimes I agree with him, sometimes I don't. In this case, I'm glad that he said that. Donald Trump himself said that he was fine with Obergefell and gay marriage. And we have some people insisting not only on continuing to oppose same-sex marriage, which is your prerogative if that's your position, that's fine, we might have a disagreement, but to say a group of gay conservatives can't even have a booth at the partisan convention because they're gay, that's the only explanation. That seems backwards and increasingly out of step with where we are as a country and where we are as a political movement. Poll out last year from Gallup showed support for same-sex marriage hitting an all-time high, 70% support, including for the first time ever a majority of self-identified Republican voters. 55% of Republicans last year supported same-sex marriage. Now, that's not to say that the other 45% are a bunch of horrible bigots and awful people. I understand you can be kind and welcoming and compassionate and still believe in a traditional one-man, one-woman definition of marriage. I don't like to throw around the bigotry term all the time. I don't think it helps. But when you say, we don't want your kind at this event at all, don't even set up a booth in the basement, you're not welcome here, that, to me, is an indication of something uglier from the people who are making that decision and continue to make that decision. And by the way, at this convention, they actually moved backwards on the issue of acceptance and tolerance on LGBT stuff. They adopted a new element of the platform that called being gay, quote, an abnormal lifestyle choice. Now, we can parse the word abnormal. It's certainly unusual. It's not the norm. Ninety-some-odd percent of the population is straight. Although you see some of the polls of younger people, and I think some folks are identifying in ways just to kind of be part of the fad or whatever. I think that's part of the effect. Some of it is also people feeling more comfortable for the first time to come out, where that hasn't really been possible or encouraged or acceptable in previous generations. But obviously, we're a minority. Those of us in the LGBT community, I get that. Abnormal is not the word to describe that because they're trying to, I think, pick a pejorative. An abnormal lifestyle choice. Whatever you think about the LGBT community or political issues surrounding it, and if you listen to this show and you're conservative and have a more traditional view, I bet you you agree with me on some stuff in this realm and disagree with other stuff, and I think that's fine. What I can tell you in my own personal experience is this is not a lifestyle choice that I made. It's not a lifestyle choice. I would not have chosen this. I would have, especially as a younger person, 
desperately liked to feel mainstream, normal, and be straight. Now, I am very blessed and have an amazing life and family and friends, and I love my life. And I'm grateful for the many people who fought for our rights through the years. Are there people pushing too far in certain respects these days? Yes. And when I disagree, I call that out. But I think it's just such a misunderstanding. It betrays such a misunderstanding. To say it's a lifestyle choice, abnormal lifestyle choice. And by the way, log cabins, you're not welcome. What exactly is the point of that within the Texas Republican Party convention? What are we trying to do here in that case? It just feels like a throwback or a sort of like, you know, working backwards in time. And it also doesn't reflect where the country, as I said, or even the base, the electorate on the Republican side actually is. Where people are at least more indifferent, ambivalent, accepting, tolerant. And it wasn't just about LGBT issues either. They had a plank in the platform declaring that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. They were winking at some sort of some sort of a vote or referendum on secession at some point. You may have seen the videos or the audio clips of Senator John Cornyn getting booed lustily when he started his speech and at the end of his speech and throughout his speech because he's had the crime of sitting down with Democrats to talk about something after Uvalde. And again, we're still waiting on legislative text. I'm open to a lot of what has been put out there publicly in terms of the outline. I think you want to see how they actually put that in detail in an actual piece of legislation. But this was not about grabbing guns. And I think it's fine to stand up and ask questions or challenge a senator on red flag laws and protections on civil liberties and due process. I think angrily booing your U.S. senator who just won re-election in 2020 by roughly 10 points outperforming Trump, outperforming his colleague in the Senate from 2018, just booing him the way that they did in such a hostile environment. Look, you have the right to express your displeasure. It's a politician at a political event. I just don't think it's a great look. John Cornyn, when he won re-election, he won 76% of the Republican primary vote two years ago, 76%. And these are 5,000 people at a convention. It's not representative. But it absolutely gives an opportunity for the media to paint Republicans and conservatives writ large as this angry group of antediluvian people. And I'm not casting aspersions on everyone who attended this convention. I know that there were people who were trying to stand up and make things a little bit more sane. One guy got up and tried to take the abnormal lifestyle choice plank, that language out. He said, look, we're a political party here. We're not the Westboro Baptist Church. And they put it up for a vote, and they voted his position down, and they kept the language in. So I'm not here to attack everyone who was there. I'm also here to say people who were at that convention making the choices that they made 
really played into the hands of the left and the media who want anyone right of center dumped into that bucket of mindset and those people. And while I would probably find common cause with some of those folks on a lot of different issues, if that's the way they want to go about politics, I'm not really interested in that. You may have seen that Dan Crenshaw, who's a guest on this show, who recently won his Republican primary overwhelmingly, even though sort of the hardcore right-wingers came after him hard during that primary. They questioned his faith. They call him all sorts of names. He won overwhelmingly his primary, and he is on track to win re-election in Congress. He showed up at this convention, and he and his staff were physically assaulted by some of the people at that convention who were shouting slurs at him, calling him a globalist, using this nickname, Patch McCain, which I think is really gross. Whatever you think of John McCain, he was a war hero. When SNL made fun of Dan Crenshaw's war wounds to just take a nasty shot at him, that was something that conservatives, I think, correctly said, well, that's over the line. So I don't think it's okay. If you've got problems with Dan Crenshaw, the way he votes, what he says, that's fine. Patch McCain is a really gross thing. And then you add the physical altercation on top of it. It's like, you know, again, what exactly are you guys doing at this convention? I think right now, the American people desperately want sanity and competence. They are getting neither from the Democrats. They are eager to paint Republicans as insane and incompetent in turn while claiming to be the adults in the room who will be just these moderate, pragmatic people who follow the science, we know that's a lie. But I think the Republicans would do well to take the mantle of sanity and not get dragged into these sort of ugly areas where you have people saying, oh, we don't want groups of voters. We're not interested in you because you're icky. I have news. That's not how you win elections. It's a political party, not a religious movement. And you want as many people in the fold as possible. You want to attract the biggest tent to win elections. And I don't think that the convention down in Texas this weekend furthered that goal, to put it mildly. But some of the crazy festival of weirdness that they did put on is fodder for the left to try to turn swingable voters away from the right and from conservatives and from Republicans. So maybe within that room of 5,000 people that all played well, and that's the fight they want to have, I think broadly speaking, that's not the fight we should have. Focus, sanity, competence. That's just me. All right, soapbox moment over. We'll take a break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. A few more decision days coming at the Supreme Court tomorrow and Thursday. So the Dobbs case might come down. I still think that'll be held for the very end of the term, the case on abortion. Media still doing a ton of abortion coverage because they are fanatics on the issue. I saw on Father's Day... The Today Show did a report, an interview, this sort of feature piece of eight fathers 
whose previous children had been aborted and helped them become the fathers that they are today. It's just a very creepy, gross framing. Like, look how abortion helped these men become better dads. Ugh. And I guess those are the men that are allowed to have an opinion on abortion. Aside from the men who have abortions, of course, right? We were always told about that. Some men have abortions, but men can't talk about abortion unless men are pro-choice, in which case then we're interested. I think that's how those rules work. I wonder if the Today Show will also have a group of women that they'll interview who are haunted by and regret deeply their abortions. Will we get that segment on the Today Show or not really? I won't hold my breath. Washington Post has a story, meanwhile, about a teenage woman in Texas who was pregnant, wanted an abortion. Now she has twins, and there's a photo of her changing the diaper of one of the twins, and they're both lying there. And I look at this photograph, and I see three important, precious human beings filled with potential and worth. And the suggestion that the world might be better off without some or any of them, I think, is also pretty disgusting. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day after the show ends, a little after 6 p.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening. Joining us now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor. He's a surgeon and professor of health policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, author of The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. And, Doctor, it's great to have you back here. Good to be with you, Guy. I would like to talk with you about COVID vaccines and young children because the powers that be at the CDC and the FDA have approved COVID vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer for infants through kindergartners, basically. And a lot of parents believe this is a long time coming. They wanted to get their kids vaccinated. Others are not so sure if it's necessary for their kids to get vaccinated against this virus. And they're nervous about potential side effects. I've been reading some of your Twitter analysis based on other people's delving into the data that was used to justify these conclusions. And I think it's fair to say, I don't want to overstate or understate it, I think it's fair to say that some of this data is suspect slash concerning about the actual volume of good information upon which the decision was based. What can you tell us about this call that was made and what do you think about the controversy around it? Well, first of all, there was no statistical significance in the vaccinated and unvaccinated children in the studies what they're using at the FDA and CDC to justify authorizing and recommending these vaccines is something called a concept of immunobridging. That is, if you see antibodies in these young children, we, we generally believe those antibodies have a benefit in older people and children. So therefore, we can extrapolate that there's likely a benefit in young children. But many of us were concerned about the scientific process of authorizing and recommending these vaccines. No statistical significance. There was only one hospitalization of a child in the study, and it was in someone vaccinated. One child had a febrile seizure. Let's remember, these are not without any complications. Kids don't tell you when they have myocarditis 
at age six months or one year. And there's a lot we just don't know. You can't make a lot of conclusions from 6,000 children. The polio vaccine, by comparison, was studied in 1.8 million children before it was broadly recommended. And there was one data point that you and I went back and forth on a little bit on Twitter where there were a grand total of three children cited, three. There were 10, I guess, total, three of which got the vaccine. The other ones got the placebo. What's that about? That seems like a ludicrously low number for any type of data that's going to be used or extrapolated to offer recommendations for tens of millions of children around the country. That's right. When they said there was an 80% effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine in in one of the subgroups of young people, it was based on three individuals who got vaccinated. And those three individuals really had no statistical significance that would pass any sniff test. If this were submitted to a medical journal, the medical journal peer review process would reject the study. Now, in fairness, Pfizer is saying that's not the, it wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. It was just looking for antibodies. But people have a right to be skeptical. Look, this is a vaccine that was developed for the Wuhan strain. We are now circulating with an Omicron strain that's more mild, more ubiquitous, and may not work against this current strain. And most importantly, all the people in the study were children who did not have COVID in the past. Now, the prevalence of natural immunity is so high, it's upwards of 90%, because it was 75% in February, according to the CDC itself. So it's likely 80 to 90% now, given how ubiquitous Omicron has been. So we're basing this broad recommendation on a subgroup of kids who did not have natural immunity and ignoring the fact that most kids do. That's why only 18% of parents are eager to get their babies and toddlers vaccinated. Right. And I'm a big supporter of the vaccine for adults, especially people with comorbidities and people in particularly vulnerable demographics. And I've been very consistent about that from the very beginning. I think kids, especially younger kids, are a totally different ballgame based on everything that we know about the virus itself and how it affects young children. Which brings me to Florida. The state of Florida has decided to recommend against vaccinating healthy young children. And they've been assailed, you might imagine, very vociferously as anti-vax and this is dangerous. Florida officials say, no, we're following the data. We're following the science. We're following the lead of countries like Finland and Sweden, for example, in Scandinavia, who have done the same thing. What do you make of this? What's your analysis, medically, doctor, of the Florida controversy? Look, I think if a parent has a child with a special medical condition and that child has not had COVID in the past, I would go ahead and get the child vaccinated. But I wouldn't do it in the three or four week interval. I would do it at eight weeks or 12 weeks for the second dose. That's the way the data shows it's better given. But Florida has basically said we've looked at the data in healthy children. That's a subgroup of people. And in healthy children, if there's a case there, it's not compelling. So they're saying we can't jump on this bandwagon effect of this incredible, enthusiastic vaccine fanaticism that has dichotomized the issue into you're either for or against vaccines. And that's just scientifically dishonest. That's, you know, every vaccine needs to be evaluated, every study independently. We have this sort of vaccine fanaticism that's put a scarlet letter on anyone that asks a question. Look, I'd love to see the data. We have zero clinical data to support vaccines in kids under five. That's the reality. Now you can say, look, in the absence of data, I'm gonna go ahead and just get my child vaccinated because I believe we can extrapolate 
what an antibody elevation means. That's a fair scientific argument, but most scientists have lost their scientific objectivity. And when the CDC director came out yesterday with this emotional, enthusiastic, beaming announcement that they now have recommended this vaccine for babies and toddlers, I would have approached that differently. I would have said, you know, based on very little data, we chose to go ahead and, and recommend this. And we believe it's safe, although we don't have good safety data. We didn't have enough kids in the study to make that conclusion. And let's remember that study was only done in kids who have not had COVID before. That would have been my approach. I think people are hungry for honesty right now. If a kid has had COVID, then does it depend when he or she had COVID, what strain it was, when a parent is trying to determine whether or not a vaccine makes sense? Because we've talked many times, doctor, about the power of natural immunity. If a child who's already at very, very, very low risk of bad outcomes, if they contract COVID, has already had COVID and recovered from it, that would seem to me, especially since it's most kids now, based on the data that you just cited a few moments ago, that would seem to me to be an argument against injecting that child with more shots. Yeah, certainly the idea of immunizing people already immune never made sense to me. It doesn't make sense to the CDC when it comes to other infections like chicken pox. Dr. Fauci famously said on C-SPAN to a caller, if you had the flu, you don't need the flu shot. Why would you get the flu shot? Having the infection is the most effective vaccine. That's what the direct quote from Dr. Fauci. And I agreed exactly with what he said. That is a basic principle. If you've <clears throat> COVID is a changing virus, and if you've had COVID in the past, you are still at risk of getting reinfected. But the more recent your infection was, the less likely you are to get uh, reinfected. But at any point, any COVID infection creates that B and T cell, the memory cell response that helps protect against severe illness. And that's why clinically, we just the entire two and a half years of this pandemic really have not seen people get reinfected and get into deep trouble with COVID with ultra rare exceptions. For a healthy person, we do not see reinfections cause severe illness that result in ICU stays and intubation. That's just the true observation. So I think people should feel good about their natural immunity if that's what they've got. Okay, and just on this point briefly, the criticism going toward Florida, just to double down on this question a little bit, some of it is based upon, and we saw this from the former Surgeon General Jerome Adams, was out on Twitter saying, I don't like to get political, but, and then he criticized Florida for their approach to all of this, and he included this CDC slide from a PowerPoint presentation that purports to show that COVID is a top five killer among children age zero to five. Of course, very few children in that age group die for obvious reasons, right? They are very young children. It's a very safe group. But among those who do tragically pass away, this chart at least claims to show that COVID is number four or number five in terms of the causation of death within that age group. And a lot of people are saying, if that's your justification for pushing the vaccine, the COVID vaccine on young children, that is a deeply misleading piece of data to be citing and to be resting your argument upon. What's your analysis of that? What's the takeaway from whether or not COVID is in fact 
a top killer of children because we've been told over and over again that children, especially young children, tend to be the most safe, the least negatively affected by this virus. Well, I saw that statistic that was put out by the CDC, and I thought it was very dishonest, uh, Guy, to be very frank. We rem- remember just a few months ago when the CDC revised down the number of deaths in children significantly, like shaved off uh, hundreds of deaths. What's going on right now is there's been a very sloppy data collection that does not distinguish kids with medical conditions, special comorbidities from healthy kids. And what Florida has basically said, appropriately so, is that there's no good data to support vaccinating healthy children. It doesn't stop transmission. And they basically said, how can we push this so strongly without that data? It would be like saying, you know, we have deaths from breast cancer. So men should worry about breast cancer and we should aggressively do mammograms in men. It's a different population with a radically different risk profile. Same with COVID. If you've got an infection that selectively harms those with special medical conditions, it's hard to lump everyone together and say, well, everyone should get vaccinated. Statistic came out of the UK this week that 65% of hospitalizations for COVID were really not for COVID. They just had an incidental positive test. And those are, yet those are the numbers being inflated out there and presented to parents they lump everyone together and make the risk look more dangerous. And we're massively undercounting cases. Remember, most cases are never detected. Kids are just asymptomatic. They don't get tested. So, Or they test under- positive at home and it's not you know, referred to the government. It doesn't count the official t- uh, statistics. But I just want to underscore what you just said. This was the U.K. NHS data that just came out, and I know you highlighted it earlier today, roughly two-thirds – of all quote-unquote COVID-19 hospitalizations are with, not primarily of, COVID, where you show up at the hospital for some other reason, you have to take a test because that's the protocol, it comes back positive. That's not why you're in the hospital, but it comes back as a positive. Those have been counted as COVID hospitalizations. That's misleading. The number is even greater, the data suggests, among children. And going back to that CDC chart that Dr. Adams was using to justify his attacks against Florida and other people are as well, trying to hype the idea that this is a clear and present danger to the lives of young children. My understanding is those CDC statistics did not really distinguish with the between the with or of distinction that we're talking about, and it tabulated all of the COVID-related juvenile deaths over the course of two-plus years and put those totals up against other causes in a single year, which is not an apples-to-apples comparison either. It just seems like they shouldn't have to mess around with this data. They shouldn't have to shade things to make things scarier if they just wanted to be accurate and convey correct information to people as opposed to trying to push people in a certain direction or into a certain mentality. It is so scientifically dishonest, the way these numbers are being misrepresented to advance an agenda. Remember, the head of the FDA Vaccine Center quit in protest over this very issue, sort of pressure to get stuff done without going through the normal process. And we've seen it in so many levels, the exaggeration and inflation of hospitalization numbers, especially in children. We've seen it in uh, undercounting cases, which makes the infection fatality rate look more deadly than it really is, and the undercounting of vaccine adverse events, which makes the vaccine look safer than it really is. And all of this is put together in sort of this dichotomous 
culture war of you're either for us or against us. Mm -hmm. You're either 100% for all vaccines or against all vaccines and an anti-vaxxer. And I can tell you, people at the FDA have told me morale is low. The scientific process is not being uh, tended to with close attention. And this is not a good situation that we're in right now. We're using bad data to make big decisions. Dr. McCary, last question, just to bottom line it. If there's a parent listening right now with a three-year-old, a four-year-old, someone in this age group, what is your medical advice on how they should think about the vaccination decision for that child? First of all, the child is more likely to die in a swimming accident than of COVID. Most kids have had the infection and have natural immunity and protection. They're still going to get a common cold-like illness if they get infected or reinfected. We have have very few children nationwide right now in the hospital with COVID. And the ones who are have special medical conditions. So in those children, I recommend vaccinating them. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor. He's a surgeon and a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and that university's School of Public Health. Doctor, we always appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time today. Great to be with you, Guy. Thanks. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we've talked a bit here on the program about Leah Thomas and fairness in sports, transgender athletes, girls in women's sports, and I think there's a distinction that I always make between being caring and kind and respectful towards all people versus fairness in athletic competition. And here's an update from the World Governing Body for Swimming via the New York Times. That organization, FINA, has effectively barred transgender women from the highest levels of women's international competition as of yesterday, an overwhelming vote, intensifying a debate over gender and sports. The vote by FINA which administers international competitions in water sports, prohibits transgender women from competing unless they began medical treatments to suppress production of testosterone before going through one of the early stages of puberty or by age 12, whichever occurred later, thus establishing one of the strictest rules against transgender participation in international sports. Scientists believe the onset of male puberty gives transgender women a lasting irreversible physical advantage over athletes who were female at birth. World Swimming also would establish a new, quote, open category for athletes who identify as women but do not meet the requirement to compete against people who were female at birth. So another category, another area where trans people can compete. This seems like a pretty fair compromise. I know a lot of activists are up in arms and angry about it, but this kind of seems like common sense to me. I know some people on the other side are worried If the line is drawn at puberty or age 12, would that encourage kids or parents to make irreversible decisions very early in someone's life? Is that potentially a problematic incentive? I don't think this debate is over. I think the discussion is still ongoing. This overall seems like a sensible step in a good direction. We are efforting to get Caitlyn Jenner on this program to talk about it. She obviously has a thought or two. We will work on that. Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our happy hour on this Monday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and then around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. See you over there. Here on the radio side, though, our website, always GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink which is absolutely fantastic. It's so good. I had one or two, perhaps, over the weekend. I'll cop to that. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They're expanding like crazy, 40 states now. And if you've tried it, you know why. It is delicious. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Joining us now is my friend, Brad Thor, who's a New York Times best-selling author. He writes thrillers. He generally puts one out every year right around this time. I'm a fan. I devour these books. And his latest in the Scott Harvath series is called Rising Tiger. I just finished it on Saturday. I blew through this book. Rising Tiger is available everywhere on July 5th. So I feel very privileged to get a sneak peek and also to talk with Brad about his forthcoming guaranteed bestseller. They're all surefire bestsellers. The only question is, does it become like number one, number two, or number three? That's how popular Brad's work is. Brad, another hit in the making here in Rising Tiger. Congratulations, and welcome back to the show. Uh, It's great to be with you, and thanks for the kind words, Guy. I'm really glad you enjoyed uh, Rising Tiger. Well, I did because, look, a lot of your books through the years take place, and I talk about this whenever we discuss your latest work, you have this really cool way of taking different disparate plot lines, often in different places around the world, and then bringing them all together at the end, and it all just kind of works. And you bring the reader on this amazing tour of the globe over the course of all of your novels. And this one was really a focus on the threat of China and the Chinese Communist Party. And most of the book, the lion's share of the book, took place in India which I think was an interesting choice and a choice that really makes a lot of sense from a geopolitical standpoint, and yet it kind of feels underplayed in our conversations about sort of the the way of the world and the state of geopolitics. Let's talk about that choice first. Obviously, the CCP and that threat uh, is not a shock to anyone, but why do you decide to set most of Rising Tiger in India? Well, it's a great question, and as you and I talk about every year, uh, my books are like the James Bond movies. You don't need to have ever seen a Bond movie to go to the theater and see the latest one. You're not going to feel like you missed a thing. So if you haven't read a Brad Thor book before, you can start with Rising Tiger. Uh, What The seed for Rising Tiger came from two years ago last week in the high Himalayas. Chinese PLA troops 
snuck across the border uh, into India, and they were armed not with firearms, but with all these homemade weapons. This really happened. Iron rods studded with spikes, uh, wooden clubs wrapped with barbed wire, and they attacked a contingent of Indian troops. And it was the worst attack uh, between – or the worst skirmish between India and China uh, since 1975. And these are two nuclear neighbors. And I looked at this and I said, wow, why is nobody paying attention to all of the pressure China is putting on India? Wait, so just hold, hold up there, Brad, just for one yeah. second. I just – sometimes especially – when I'm talking with you about your books, I just want to be crystal clear. What you just described was not a scene from Rising Tiger, although it sort of becomes one. But what you just described really happened in real life. Recently. Absolutely. It happened it happened to it happened June 15th, 2020. Uh, there was dead on both sides. In fact, there were some Indian soldiers that were. Uh, unidentifiable. They had to use DNA testing to figure out who was who on the battlefield after the Chinese withdrew. And as a thriller author, I looked at this and said, this is an amazing story. And as I dug deeper, the big takeaway I came uh, out of it with is we really need to be pushing for a more formalized alliance with India and wrapping in the other members of the Quad, Australia and Japan, to create a formal relationship in Asia similar to an Asian version of NATO. Right. And so the idea for the book was – Like a democracy alliance. Exactly, but particularly focused on curbing the military and economic ambitions of China, which is buying its way around the world into all these countries and having undue influence. So I thought it was a good kind of background for a really fun spy thriller, and I'd never done anything in India, and I'd never seen any of my contemporaries do anything in India. And I, It turned out to be a really cool place to set a thriller. Brad, what is the Belt and Road Initiative? I know some people may have heard that in some context at some point, but it's a really important phenomenon, the Belt and Road Initiative, and then something else that I hadn't heard of until I read Rising Tiger, the String of Pearls. It's related. Define those terms for us, if you would. Correct, the String of Pearls. So first of all, the Belt and Road Initiative is an attempt by China to connect itself with the rest of the world by investing in development projects around the globe so that they can tie themselves to other nations. I've, uh, I've likened it to being a polar bear getting its nose inside the tent, and there's no good part of a polar bear to ever have in your tent. And when the Chinese put money into your co- country, they start trying to exert influence over your foreign policy, what you're doing domestically. They're doing this in Pakistan, for instance, billions and billions of dollars go Going in there, which is going to help turn Pakistan even harder against India. And so they do this around the world in different countries. And then the String of Pearls is basically a naval equivalent of the Belt and Road Initiative, where China is setting up commercial uh, permits for them to use shipping ports and sometimes to even put their military in these ports. And covertly, they're setting up spy hubs and listening posts and things like that. So India, essentially, if you look at specifically China's efforts in that area, they have put a noose around India's neck, and India is a, India could be a great substitute for China for our supply chain and many, many other reasons uh, that we should formalize a more official alliance with them. And so, again, all of these real-life facts go into the faction, as I call it, of my mm-hmm. novels. Where you don't know where the facts end, and the fiction begins. Yeah, and to your earlier point, here you have, with China and India, with the bloody skirmish that played out that you described back in 2020 – These are two huge nations with more than a billion people living in each of them that are both nuclear armed and they're neighbors. So if you see any sort of rising tension there, 
I think it's something that everyone should pay at least some attention to. It seems somewhat significant. And what you delve into in Rising Tiger, the premise basically is, okay, so you have the Chinese working to undermine India. They don't like having a democracy right on their border. They view them with suspicion. They're teaming up with others like the Pakistanis to hurt New Delhi and the government there and the people of India. What would happen, hypothetically, if the United States were secretly, covertly plotting and planning to create another version of NATO? And instead of Europe, this would be sort of in the Pacific theater or in the East, generally speaking, with those other allies that you just mentioned. And then the Chinese government got wind of it. And they were desperate to stop this type of alliance from ever formalizing. What would the Chinese spy system, basically, and military attempt to do to disrupt that? That's the jumping off point of Rising Tiger. What can you give my audience in terms of a sneak preview of the plot to whet everyone's appetite without any major spoilers? <laughs> well, I've got a very interesting uh, – so chapter one is that whole attack in the high Himalayas that's ambushed by the Chinese on the Indians. And then chapter two is actually a shadow diplomat set, sent by the White House to try to get India into this official organization to really get this ramped up. But the Chinese know he's coming, and outside a restaurant in Jaipur, this guy's not meeting anybody in Japan or Australia or India in their capitals. He's meeting in secondary cities. This American shadow diplomat gets assassinated, and our guy Scott Harvath, my protagonist, gets tasked by the White House with figuring out, A, was the Chinese behind it, and then B, working his way up the chain and taking out every single person responsible. Uh, But again, it's all wrapped up in the international intrigue and the espionage that really happens in uh, India on a daily basis. This was such fertile ground to do a a thriller. It, It was just my cup runneth over the entire time. There is a recurring theme and I don't want to give too much away, but there are a number of incidents that occur in Rising Tiger involving so-called directed energy attacks. This is something that we have seen in the United States. We've seen U.S. diplomats targeted abroad in places, for example, like Cuba. We've heard the term Havana syndrome, and there's been some discussion of is it even real? Is it psychosomatic? Whenever I read about it, it's very disturbing and confusing, and I don't really know what the truth is. And this is one of those areas where when I read your books, Brad, I start wondering, okay, how much of this is real? How much of this is fiction? What can you tell us about these types of attacks and the way that these weapons are utilized by bad guys in Rising Tiger? Is that reality is that science fiction is that what might come one day or is is the future already here what can you tell us on that front so it was a combination of the two because there were rumors that to mask their uh, retreat in the Himalayas that the Chinese used a directed energy weapon against the Indians. They thought they were going to be able to slaughter all these Indian troops. They were losing the battle, and allegedly it is, it is a big rumor. They brought one of these weapons to bear on the battlefield there. Now, what I thought was interesting is, yes, you've heard of Havana syndrome. It was uh, this combination of symptoms that was visited upon U.S. and Canadian personnel at the embassies down in Havana. Uh, It's also appeared in D.C. But what I found was really interesting is an American diplomat and her two dogs in Shanghai 
succumbed to this, and she was in terrible straits. She called her mother from the East Coast. I believe her mom was a Virginia resident to come help take care of her in Shanghai. And when the mother showed up, the mother was uh, fell victim to Havana syndrome as well. So I thought this idea of looking at directed energy weapons that supposedly the Chinese have been using might be an interesting complement to the book and an interesting subplot. And then also the first the Secretary of Defense for India last year went down in an unexplained – this is real life – an unexplained helicopter crash where they don't know if all the avionics were fried or what happened. But it was really, really uh, mysterious to the Indian government why this helicopter went down. And I thought, oh, that might be another interesting thing to fold in if the Chinese were trying to upend India joining an American or an Asian version of NATO. Might they also try to take out the Secretary of Defense? And it gave me a, a neat way to rope in these directed uh, energy weapons as a subplot in Rising Tiger. Yeah, and this is what is so good but also creepy about Brad Thor novels is he takes real stuff and folds it in and maybe enhances a little bit but not necessarily, and you're not really sure where the reality ends and the fiction begins, which makes it for, you know, it makes it a great read but also makes you think and think beyond just enjoying a thriller at the beach, like what's actually happening in the world, what type of threat does an emerging enormous China and their surveillance state pose to the rest of the world. And on that front, Brad, I don't know if you saw the story this week, but it was revealed, and this should not come as a surprise to anyone, because a lot of people were warning of specifically this, including the former U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, whom you thank in your acknowledgments in this book, but TikTok, and that being a Chinese company, and a lot of people worrying that it's a CC espionage tool to mine a huge amount of data on massive numbers of people. Some countries like India have banned TikTok. Others obviously have not. But it was described this week or it was revealed this week that some of this data of U.S. users was being accessed in China in a way that had not been confirmed previously. Again, not surprising, but nevertheless relatively stark. Your thoughts on that? Well, so first of all, that's the reason why the Thor family doesn't have TikTok on our phones. And yes, TikTok was banned in India along with every other Chinese app after this attack in the Himalayas two years ago last week. It was one of uh, New Delhi's reprisals against Beijing. There are, in 2026, there will be 1 billion cell phone, smartphone users in India. And so India pulled the plug on Chinese apps. It was a huge blow to the Chinese tech community. And New Delhi basically gave Beijing the finger and said, you have been gathering our personal data and the biometric information on Indian citizens for years, and we're not going to have it anymore. Bravo. I'd like to see us do the same thing here. Yeah, I tend to agree. Now let's quickly step aside and continue our conversation with Brad Thor, best-selling author, right after this, his new book, Rising Tiger. I have one last question for Brad next. Fresh conservative talk, Kai Benson Show. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Brad Thor is with us. Just catching up with Scott Harvath, who has been your main protagonist in your main line of novels all the way back to Lions of Lucerne, which is book number one. I always like to say when I recommend Brad Thor books, I recommend starting with Lions of Lucerne, not because you will be lost reading any of them out of order. As Brad said, absolutely true. You can pick one up independently. It's like an episode of Law and Order. It's self-contained. It makes a few references back for people who know, and there's some winks and some Easter eggs here or there. But overall... You can read them completely out of order if you want to. I like to start with Lines of Lucerne. Maybe that's because I'm biased. That's what I did. But 
Scott Harvath was a young man in Lines of Lucerne. He's getting less young with each passing novel. Where is he in his life in Rising Tiger? And is there any thought in the back of Brad Thor's mind about when it might become unrealistic for Scott Harvath to keep putting his body through this insanity book after book? Well, there's no plan to time to a desk yet, but he very much parallels uh, some guys that I know that are still in the intelligence community that are doing everything they can, performance-enhancing drugs. There's no rules against those. If we're out hunting bad guys and you're doing steroids or whatever it takes, you know, shaves a little bit off your mile, that's totally good stuff. So there's a lot of people that this is their life. This is their American dream. They're not going to be able to settle down with a wife, two kids, and the white picket fence. It's just not going to happen for them. They live for being out there doing some of the nation's most dangerous business. And I see a lot of these guys still kicking in doors, still shooting bad guys in the face. We need them out there. We need their wisdom. But you do get to a point where you say, are you better, Tom Brady, helping develop the next generation of players uh, rather than being on the field? But only Tom Brady can make that call. And I actually draw that parallel in Rising Tiger about Tom Brady. Only he can decide when it's time to step off the field. Well, And Scott Harvath has sort of done that false start once or twice where he's like, maybe I'm done. <laughs> oh, just kidding. I'm back. It's just like Tom Brady as a matter of fact, and you mentioned these guys that you were referencing, you talk to this community a lot, right? This is not just you letting your imagination run wild. That's part of it, but you really speak and have close relationships with some of these special high-level apex predator operators, right, to try to maximize some of the realisticness of these books, yes? Absolutely. I think that's what makes my thrillers so exciting and so much fun is I take you right to the edge, right to the property line and let you peer over the hedges into this world. And it's really accurate. Uh, there's certain things that I can't reveal in the books and I don't. You know, my my sharpshooters, my people who are in that community get to look at the books before I put them out and they can say, ah, you know what, we didn't tell you that, but you figured it out on your own. That's got to come out of the book. And I pull it because I'm an American first. I'm a novelist second. Uh, and I want people to have a great ride, but I don't want to reveal stuff that shouldn't be out there in the big bad world. Brad Thor's latest book is Rising Tiger. I read the whole thing. I was just engrossed, and I recommend it. It's a lot of fun, as they all are. Rising Tiger is available everywhere July the 5th. Rush out and get it. And, Brad, we will all hold our breath and wait to see where on the bestseller list it lands, because it will. You have a very loyal audience. I'm a member of that loyal audience, and we'll be rooting for you when that first list comes out. July 5th is the big on-sale date. Again, congratulations and best of luck. Thank you, my friend. You bet. Brad Thor on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Chugging along here on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. Earlier in today's broadcast, at the very start of the show, we welcome back Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute to separate fact from fiction. There's a blizzard of misinformation and bogus talking points out there on gas prices, oil companies, greed, price gouging, all of it in the context of inflation, of course. Brian knows his stuff. Here's part of that discussion. There are some experts circling the calendar for 2023 as the likeliest time for a recession related to all of this. Some people even saying 24. It could be much sooner than that, to the point that you just made here a moment ago. There are a lot of people, Brian, who are my age, younger, who have never experienced 
inflation, let alone runaway inflation. They don't remember the Carter years at all. When you and now they're experiencing it, it's a very unpleasant experience. You know, every time you go to buy anything, it costs more. The purchasing power of your dollar is diminished. Your wages are less valuable. Any increase that you get might get overtaken in all likelihood or swamped by inflation. Okay, so that's sort of step one of this type of pain, fueled by a number of different phenomena and causes, including reckless overspending by the federal government. To get out of it, you're talking about these course corrections from the Fed and higher interest rates. What does that look like? Why does that affect people? How does that affect people if interest rates continue to go up? What is what is that ex, uh, real life experience like for average folks? Yeah, I mean, if, if for those who remember the '70s and early '80s, um, what happens is the Federal Reserve can raise interest rates through the roof. We had the prime rate hit about 18 percent in the late '70s. Um, the purpose, of course, is to basically stop economic activity. You stop business investment. You stop home loans. You stop car loans. You stop enough economic activity that you defeat inflation by basically grinding the economy to a halt. But the price of grinding the economy to a halt is that you might bring down inflation, but the high interest rates make it very hard on families who can't borrow. If you have an adjustable rate mortgage, you're in deep trouble. If you want to move, you're in deep trouble. And the fact that businesses can't really invest and people don't really have much money to spend in that environment causes the whole economy to contract. And that's when you get unemployment rate hitting about 10%, which is the last time we had inflation this high, we had the push up on the unemployment rate to 10%, which is about what it was at the peak of the Great Recession in 2009. So <laughs> I hope it doesn't get to that point, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that it won't get to the, that point, but that was the 70s and 80s example. My full interview with Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, an economic policy wonk and expert. It's available online along with the rest of the show, for free, on demand, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a very exciting special guest will join us. I'll give you a clue. It ties into something we celebrated yesterday. Okay? You'll find out in mere moments. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Be on Kennedy tonight with my friend, Fox Business Network in the 7 p.m. hour. Looking forward to that. Hope to see you there. Again, that's FBN coming up, not next hour, but the following hour. I'm on the panel tonight. Also, a quick note, in addition to giving you our website, which we always do, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free of charge. I wanted to give a shout-out. To Matt Fitzpatrick, who won the U.S. Open in golf yesterday, his first major that he won. And I'm not a big golf guy at all, but he's a Northwestern guy. So I wanted to give him a shout-out, give him a round of applause here on the show. I see Luke Donald, who's another Northwestern tied golfer, was congratulating him. So pretty cool thing for Purple Nation, and I know that we are proud to claim Matt Fitzpatrick as one of our own. In fact, his name is very similar to our head football coach, Pat Fitzgerald. And Fitz congratulated the other Fitz on Twitter, which was sort of a fun meta sports Northwestern moment. So that's a big achievement, even though it's not something that I really follow closely at all. 
I know winning a major is a huge deal. So kudos to Matt. Well, joining us now is a very special guest. It's really a booking coup by producer Christine to be able to get this person on such short notice, nonetheless. Yesterday was Father's Day, of course, and I spoke to my father, Nick, privately, called him mid-afternoon. And I had been hoping to do a segment with him when he got back from this sort of epic journey that he was on over the span of the better part, I think, of two months. I didn't want to have him on while he was driving across the country. I wanted him to get back safely before we talked about it. He has done that. Yesterday was Father's Day. And so I am very pleased to welcome back to the show my dad, Nick. Hello, Dad. Hello. So I want to talk about this adventure that you just wrapped up a few days ago. You had been talking about slash threatening to go on this type of a drive for years. And I know I think I speak for James and Olivia, my siblings, when I say I'm glad that you finally did it so we could then hear about it as opposed to hearing about you maybe doing it at some point. (laughs) So you finally made the decision to embark on this really lengthy journey on your own, just you and the Toyota SUV. And what exactly inspired you to do this? Why was it something that you'd been talking about for years? Well, it was, was, you know, it's a bucket list item for sure. Um, And the genesis really was I was, as you, you know, you may or may not recall going through a, a difficult time at work, I guess is the nice way of saying it. Probably, oh gosh, 15 years ago, 15 plus years ago, uh, just kind of getting my, my, you know, rear end, uh, kicked pretty regularly and uh anyone who, out there who's got a difficult boss can relate to that and at the time i i remember i picked up the, the paper and read the book review section i and a title caught my eye blue highways by what really caught my eye was the the uh, author the nom de plume was william least heat moon um who uh was uh part in american indian um I'm like a Harvard professor we know, and he lost his job as an English professor at a college and threw his stuff into the back of a truck, actually, and just went where the wind blew him. And when he needed some money, he, you know, shuck oysters in Apalachicola or shovel grain uh, in North Dakota. And as he stopped around our great country, he would stay at a place for a while, and then he'd write a little vignette about it when he moved on, when the wind blew and he moved on again. And after uh, this odyssey, uh, you know, kind of came to an end, he strung all these vignettes together uh, into a book, uh, Travelogue. Um, and, you know, I think the Benson family has uh, wonderlust in its blood, just as this guy did. Um, and I said to myself, I am doing that when I retire. So uh, then, you know, we, we, we moved and that took some time. And then unfortunately, COVID hit. And that was what really uh, delayed the trip. Uh, but uh, finally, COVID subsided and I jumped in the back of the car and set off. Yeah, and I think something that also struck me in our conversations ahead of the journey was you spent a lot of your career in a huge Fortune 500 corporation, and we lived around the world. I was born abroad. James was born abroad. You travel internationally a ton, and that was all very cool. I wouldn't trade any of that for anything, and I know that you really enjoyed international travel. There were downsides, of course, but you get to see a lot of the world, but you would express that you had never really seen a lot of this country 
which was something that frustrated you and you wanted to rectify that. You wanted to change that. And so you did. So talk about this trip that you took. How long did it last? And did you have, because I would keep up on your private Facebook page that you would post photos and you would offer your kind of journal entries every couple days. That's how I kept up with it. But I didn't really know how carefully planned out it was in terms of the timing and the itinerary. Did you follow a specific plan or was it kind of loosey-goosey, whatever you felt like? Um, a bit of both. Uh, I had two kind of drop-dead dates that I really wanted to uh, to hit. One was to visit your good buddy, Dan. I had promised him that I would visit him in Las Vegas uh, as the, uh, you know, voice of the Vegas Golden Knights and COVID again had prevented that. Uh, so I figured I, I needed to see him before he headed back east for summer vacation. That was one date that I really wanted to hit. And the other one was to meet your mom for her birthday in Denver on the 12th of May, which I did. And other than that, I had uh, a very rough plan that I was going to go west on a southerly route, uh, Route 40, really, uh, part of which is the old Route 66, uh, was the way I would transit out to the west and then I would uh, transit back uh, to the east, back home uh, on an orderly route on, by and large, Route 80. Uh, and other than that, I had no plan. I had, uh, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to go where I wanted to go and go when the wind blew and stop, you know, when the wind stopped blowing. You unfortunately had to do all of this at a time when gas was basically as expensive as it's ever been before, although it could be worse and is getting worse. So I guess yeah. you dodged the worst of it, but it was still pretty bad. So the timing was not ideal in that sense, but you just decided to go for it because you had budgeted the time, you had the ability to do it, and so you did. Were there any huge, truly unforgettable highlights that you will keep with you forever? Yeah. There were, there were a number. Uh, the grandeur of the West, uh, you know, you, you see it on television, but until you see it with your own eyes and see the scope and the beauty of the West, uh, that was, you know, there, and uh, there are numerous scenes um, that I will always keep with me. And, and part of it is you're, you're over the course of, a four-hour drive, you could go through two or three distinct topographies. You could be in a desert, and then, you know, an hour or two later, you're in a high rolling plain, and uh, several hours after that, you're in, you know, the Black Hills of, you know, South Dakota, and you're in you're in mountainous, you know, Ponderosa territory. So uh, just the scope and the change, uh, that is among others uh, uh, a memory I will always keep with me. Were there surprises, things that kind of shocked you? Yeah, yeah, there were. Um, uh, I Some of it were, were – some of my surprises were uh, political, uh, and I won't you – know, although, you know, this is how you make your living, I think I probably won't go too much into those surprises. Um some of the surprises uh, were um, I, I thought I had an open mind and that I, I uh, under, uh, thought I understood the people in the flyover country, um, but I didn't. Uh, 
um, as I talked to these folks, that uh, I would try to get to church every Sunday, and I'd try to get to Sunday school and listen to these these guys. Uh, as I talked to them in a tavern or at a gas station, um, coffee shops, I would imagine. Coffee shops, absolutely. Um, or, every, or every little uh, town seems to have its own microbrewery, um, but. Uh, these are people who are highly intelligent. Um, they, they are assiduous, uh, and I think the the rest of the country, uh, e- even if you think that you understand that, until you sit down and and, and talk with the people in the heartland, um, I will admit I, I I think I underestimated just how uh, intelligent and funny, uh, witty, um, hardworking. And, and and just down to earth good people uh populate our country. Yeah, because I think that this is what when people talk about coastal elites, that's what they're talking about. Folks who will occasionally fly in for some sort of event and then head right back out and they spend most of their times on the coast. I think that there is a defensiveness of a lot of people throughout the country who feel like there's many people, even well meaning people who kinda of look down at them, who feel like they're just less sophisticated and when you actually meet a lot of these folks, they are just wonderful. They're what makes the country work, and I think they're right to be frustrated. I think we would all be better served to get to meet more and different types of Americans. That might help our culture and our country just in general right now because it seems like we're not really in a very healthy place. I think getting to know each other more as people would be a helpful thing, and it sounds like you had some of that experience as well. How long was this in total from start to finish? How many days were you gone? Oh, well, it's better part of seven weeks. Um, and, and remember, we, mom and I took a little, there was a little hiatus when we stayed with family and friends in Denver. So it wasn't all, you know, exploring uh, blue highways. And, the, and, this, and I really did, to your point, wanted to get to the smaller towns uh, and meet the people that I would not normally meet. Um, you know, who, like I said, as I said, turned out to be well-read and just funny and nice. But um, so I would say we were in Denver just about two weeks. So out of the seven weeks, uh, it's really about five weeks where I was traveling in in kind of more remote places. Right, solo, by yourself for those five weeks. It sounds by this account and by reading your stuff on Facebook that you overall really enjoyed it. You're glad that you did it. Is there another one of these that you want to do? I know you've talked about going just to the deep south, maybe during college football season at some point. Did this experience whet your appetite for more, or do you want to kind of hang out at home for a while? Uh, yes, is the answer to that question. Um, yeah, no, I, I for sure want to uh, head down south and, and uh, you know, kind of work my way around the SEC for some home football games and, and get to know the, uh, the southern part of our country. I went through 26 states. I actually counted them when I got back um, on, on this trip, and I want to wow. try to hit uh, a number of other states, uh, you know, on, on my southern sojourn. Mom will come with me for that. Uh, because we, I will not be car camping, as you know. I uh, spent oh, but probably about ten of the nights in in a car, just because I, you know, was in a remote place. But um, we'll be staying with friends or you know motels, and I'm very excited about that uh, that trip. And then I want to go back to the West. I I'll tell you what I 
a number of those places were so spectacular. And I had to, I couldn't do everything. There are a lot of things I wanted to do, places I wanted to go, uh, people I should have and would have loved to have met that I, I just didn't have time for on this trip. So I, I'm going to go back out the West if the Lord is willing. Yeah, you'll just recharge for a while and then plot your next adventures with mom, without mom. It should be a very fun and cool thing. Seven weeks, 26 states, a lot of gasoline, therefore a lot of money, but a pretty cool experience it sounds like. And I know you've been talking about it and building up to it for years, and I just wanted to talk about it with you on the air because I think it's something that a lot of Americans would be interested in. And I think people have done something similar, have dreamt of doing something similar. So I wanted you to just share your experience here with our audience and also just say one more time belatedly this time, Happy Father's Day. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. And, and believe me, a lot of Americans are doing this. I ran into so many people on the road who were doing exactly what I was doing. Most of them were not doing it in the back of their car. They had camper vans or campers, but um, a lot of people are doing that right now. And with that, we're up on time. Show's over on Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. hour Eastern time on Fox Business Network. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place on the radio. We will talk to you then. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. It's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.